You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Chapter 28 Domestic Experiences Like most other young matrons, Meg began her married life with the determination to be a model housekeeper. John should find home a paradise. He should always see a smiling face, should fare sumptuously every day, and never know the loss of a button. She brought so much love, energy, and cheerfulness to the work that she could not but succeed in spite of some obstacles. Her paradise was not a tranquil one, for the little woman fussed, was over-anxious to please, and bustled about like a true Martha, cumbered with many cares. She was too tired sometimes, even to smile. John grew dyspeptic after a course of dainty dishes, and ungratefully demanded plain fare. As for buttons, she soon learned to wonder where they went, to shake her head over the carelessness of men, and to threaten to make him sew them on himself, and see if this work would stand in patient and clumsy fingers any better than hers. They were very happy, even after they discovered that they couldn't live on love alone. John did not find Meg's beauty diminished, though she beamed at him from behind the familiar coffee-pot. Nor did Meg miss any of the romance from the daily parting, when her husband followed up his kiss with the tender inquiry, "'Shall I send some veal or mutton for dinner, darling?' The little house ceased to be a glorified bower, but it became a home, and the young couple felt that it was a change for the better. At first they played keep house and frolicked over it like children. Then John took steadily to business, feeling the cares of the head of a family upon his shoulders, and Meg laid by her cambric wrappers, put on a big apron, and fell to work, as before said, with more energy than discretion. While the cooking mania lasted, she went through Mrs. Cornelius's recipe book as if it were a mathematical exercise, working out the problems with patience and care. Sometimes her family were invited in to help eat up a too bounteous feast of successes, or Lottie would be privately dispatched with a batch of failures, which were to be concealed from all eyes in the convenient stomachs of the little Hummels. An evening with John over the account books usually produced a temporary lull in the culinary enthusiasm, and a frugal fit would ensue, during which the poor man was put through a course of bread pudding, hash, and warmed-over coffee, which tried his soul, although he bore it with praiseworthy fortitude. Before the golden mean was found, however, Meg added to her domestic possessions what young couples seldom get on long without— a family jar. Fired with a housewifely wish to see her storeroom stocked with homemade preserves, she undertook to put up her own currant jelly. John was requested to order home a dozen or so of little pots and an extra quantity of sugar, 
for their own currents were ripe and were to be attended to at once. As John firmly believed that my wife was equal to anything and took a natural pride in her skill, he resolved that he should be gratified and their only crop of fruit laid by in a most pleasing form for winter use. Home came four dozen delightful little pots, half a barrel of sugar, and a small boy to pick the currants for her. With her pretty hair tucked into a little cap, arms bared to the elbow, and a checked apron, which had a coquettish look in spite of the bib, the young housewife fell to work, feeling no doubts about her success, for hadn't she seen Hannah do it hundreds of times? The array of pots rather amazed her at first, but John was so fond of jelly, and the nice little jars would look so well on the top shelf, that Meg resolved to fill them all, and spent a long day picking, boiling, straining, and fussing over her jelly. She did her best. She asked advice of Mrs. Cornelius. She racked her brain to remember what Hannah did that she left undone. She reboiled, resugared, and restrained. But that dreadful stuff wouldn't gel. She longed to run home, bib and all, and asked Mother to lend her hand. But John and she had agreed that they would never annoy anyone with their private worries, experiments, or quarrels. They had laughed over that last word, as if the idea it suggested was a most preposterous one. But they had held to their resolve. And whenever they could get on without help, they did so, and no one interfered, for Mrs. March had advised the plan. So Meg wrestled alone with the refractory sweetmeats all that hot summer day, and at five o'clock sat down in her topsy-turvy kitchen, wrung her bedabbed hands, lifted up her voice, and wept. Now, in the first flush of the new life, she had often said, "'My husband shall always feel free to bring a friend home whenever he likes,' I shall always be prepared. There shall be no flurry, no scolding, no discomfort, but a neat house, a cheerful wife, and a good dinner. John, dear, never stop to ask my leave. Invite whom you please, and be sure of a welcome from me. How charming that was, to be sure. John quite glowed with pride to hear her say it, and felt what a blessed thing it was to have a superior wife. But... Although they had company from time to time, it never happened to be unexpected, and Meg had never had an opportunity to distinguish herself till now. It always happens so in this veil of tears. There is an inevitability about such things which we can only wonder at, deplore, and bear as best we can. If John had not forgotten all about the jelly, it really would have been unpardonable in him to choose that day of all the days in the year, to bring a friend home to dinner unexpectedly. Congratulating himself that a handsome repast had been ordered that morning, feeling sure that it would be ready to the minute, and indulging in pleasant anticipations of the charming effect it would produce when his pretty wife came running out to meet him, he escorted his friend to his mansion with the irrepressible satisfaction of a young host and husband. It is a world of disappointments, as John discovered when he reached the dovecote. The front door usually stood hospitably open. Now it was not only shut but locked, and yesterday's mud still adorned the steps. The parlor windows were closed and curtained, 
No picture of the pretty wife sewing on the piazza, in white, with a distracting little bow in her hair, or a bright-eyed hostess, smiling a shy welcome as she greeted her guest. Nothing of the sort, for not a soul appeared, but a boy asleep under the currant bushes. "'I'm afraid something has happened. Step into the garden, Scott, while I look up Mrs. Brooke,' said John, alarmed at the silence and solitude." Round the house he hurried, led by a pungent smell of burned sugar, and Mr. Scott strolled after him with a queer look on his face. He paused discreetly at a distance when Brooke disappeared. But he could both see and hear, and being a bachelor, enjoyed the prospect mightily. In the kitchen reigned confusion and despair. One edition of jelly was trickled from pot to pot, Another lay upon the floor, and a third was burning gaily on the stove. Lottie was calmly eating bread and currant wine, for the jelly was still in a hopelessly liquid state, while Mrs. Brooke, with her apron over her head, sat sobbing dismally. "'My dearest girl, what is the matter?' cried John, rushing in with awful visions of scalded hands, sudden news of affliction— and secret consternation, the thought of the guest in the garden. "'Oh, John, I am so tired and hot and cross and worried. I've been at it till I'm all worn out. Do come and help me or I shall die.' And the exhausted housewife cast herself upon his breast, giving him a sweet welcome in every sense of the word, for her pinafore had been baptized at the same time as the floor. "'What worries you, dear? Has anything dreadful happened?' "'asked the anxious John, "'tenderly kissing the crown of the little cap, "'which was all askew. "'Yes,' sobbed Meg, despairingly. "'Tell me quick, then. "'Don't cry. "'I can bear anything better than that. "'Out with it, love. "'The the jelly won't gel, "'and I don't know what to do.' "'John Brooke laughed then, "'as he never dared to laugh afterward.' and the derisive Scott smiled involuntarily as he heard the hearty peal, which put the finishing stroke to poor Meg's woe. "'Is that all? Fling it out the window and don't bother any more about it. I'll buy you quartz if you want it. But for heaven's sake, don't have hysterics, for I've brought Jack Scott home to dinner, and—' John got no further, for Meg cast him off and clasped her hands with a tragic gesture— as she fell into a chair, exclaiming in a tone of mingled indignation, reproach, and dismay, "'A man to dinner, and everything in a mess. John Brooke, how could you do such a thing?' "'Hush, he's in the garden. I forgot the confounded jelly. But it can't be helped now,' said John, surveying the prospect with an anxious eye. "'You ought to have sent word or told me this morning, and you ought to have remembered how busy I was.' "'continued Meg, petulantly, "'for even turtle doves will peck when ruffled. "'I didn't know it this morning, "'and there was no time to send word, "'for I met him on the way out. "'I never thought of asking leave "'when you have always told me to do as I liked. "'I never tried it before, "'and hang me if I'll ever do again,' "'added John, with an aggrieved air. "'I should hope not. "'Take him away at once. "'I can't see him, and there isn't any dinner.' "'Well, I like that. 
"'Where's the beef and vegetables I sent home, "'and the pudding you promised?' cried John, "'rushing to the larder. "'I hadn't time to cook anything. "'I meant to dine at Mother's. "'I'm sorry, but I was so busy.' "'And Meg's tears began again. "'John was a mild man, "'but he was human, "'and after a long day's work to come home tired, "'hungry and hopeful, "'to find a chaotic house,' an empty table, and a cross wife was not exactly conducive to repose of mind or manner. He restrained himself, however, and the little squall would have blown over, but for one unlucky word. It's a scrape, I acknowledge, but if you will lend a hand, we'll pull through and have a good time yet. Don't cry, dear, but just exert yourself a bit and fix us up something to eat. We're both as hungry as hunters, "'so we shan't mind what it is. "'Give us the cold meat and bread and cheese. "'We won't ask for jelly.' "'He meant it to be a good-natured joke, "'but that one word sealed his fate. "'Meg thought it was too cruel to hint about her sad failure, "'and the last atom of patience vanished as he spoke. "'You must get yourself out of the scrape as you can. "'I'm too used up to exert myself for anyone.' "'It's like a man to propose a bone and vulgar bread and cheese for company. "'I won't have anything of the sort in my house. "'Take that Scott up to Mother's and tell him I'm away. "'Sick. Dead. Anything. "'I won't see him, and you two can laugh at me and my jelly as much as you like. "'You won't have anything else here.' "'And having delivered her defiance all on one breath, "'Meg cast away her pinafore and left the field to bemoan herself in her own room.' What those two creatures did in her absence, she never knew. But Mr. Scott was not taken up to Mother's, and when Meg descended after they had strolled away together, she found traces of a promiscuous lunch which filled her with horror. Lottie reported that they had eaten a much and greatly laughed, and the master bid her throw away all the sweet stuff and hide the pots. Meg longed to go and tell Mother, but a sense of shame at her own shortcomings, of loyalty to John, who might be cruel, but nobody should know it, restrained her. And after a summary cleaning up, she dressed herself prettily and sat down to wait for John to come and be forgiven. Unfortunately, John didn't come, not seeing the matter in that light. He had carried it off as a good joke with Scott, excused his little wife as well as he could, and played the host so hospitably that his friend enjoyed the impromptu dinner and promised to come again. But John was angry. Though he did not show it, he felt that Meg had deserted him in his hour of need. It wasn't fair to tell a man to bring folks home any time, with perfect freedom, and when he took you up at your word, to flame up and blame him, and leave him in the lurch to be laughed at or pitied. No, by George, it wasn't, and Meg must know it. He had fumed inwardly during the feast. But when the flurry was over and he strolled home after seeing Scott off, a milder mood came over him. Poor little thing. It was hard upon her when she tried so heartily to please me. She was wrong, of course, but then she was young. I must be patient and teach her. He hoped she had not gone home. He hated gossip and interference. For a minute, he was ruffled again at the mere thought of it. And then the fear that Meg would cry herself sick softened his heart 
and sent him on at a quicker pace, resolving to be calm and kind, but firm, quite firm, and show her where she had failed in her duty to her spouse. Meg, likewise, resolved to be calm and kind, but firm, and show him his duty. She longed to run to meet him, and beg pardon, and be kissed and comforted, as she was sure of being. But, of course, she did nothing of the sort, and when she saw John coming, began to hum quite naturally, as she rocked and sewed, like a lady of leisure in her best parlor. John was a little disappointed, but feeling that his dignity demanded the first apology, he made none, only came leisurely in and laid himself upon the sofa, with the singularly relevant remark, "'We are going to have a new moon, my dear.' "'I've no objection,' was Meg's equally soothing remark. A few other topics of general interest were introduced by Mr. Brooke, and what blanketed by Mrs. Brooke, and conversation languished. John went to one window, unfolded his paper, and wrapped himself in it, figuratively speaking. Meg went to the other window, and sewed as if new rosettes for slippers were among the necessities of life. Neither spoke. Both looked quite calm and firm, and both felt desperately uncomfortable. "'Oh, dear,' thought Meg, "'married life is very trying "'and does need infinite patience as well as love, "'as Mother says. "'The word mother suggested other maternal counsels "'given long ago and received with unbelieving protests. "'John is a good man, but he has his faults, "'and you must learn to see and bear with them, "'remembering your own. "'He is very decided, but never will be obstinate, "'if you reason kindly.' not oppose impatiently. He is very accurate and particular about the truth, a good trait, though you call him fussy. Never deceive him by look or word, Meg, and he will give you the confidence you deserve, the support you need. He has a temper, not like ours, one flash and then all over, but the white, still anger that is seldom stirred, but once kindled, is hard to quench. Be careful. Be very careful not to wake his anger against yourself, for peace and happiness depend on keeping his respect. Watch yourself. Be the first to ask pardon if you both err, and guard against the little piques, misunderstandings, and hasty words that often pave the way for bitter sorrow and regret. These words came back to Meg as she sat sewing in the sunset, especially the last. This was the first serious disagreement. Her own hasty speeches sounded both silly and unkind, as she recalled them. Her own poor anger looked childish now, and thoughts of poor John coming home to such a scene quite melted her heart. She glanced at him with tears in her eyes, but he did not see them. She put down her work and got up, thinking, I'll be the first to say, forgive me. But he did not seem to hear her, she went very slowly across the room, for pride was hard to swallow, and stood by him, but he did not turn his head. For a minute she felt as if she really couldn't do it. Then came the thought, This is the beginning. I'll do my part and have nothing to reproach myself with. And stooping down, she softly kissed her husband on the forehead. Of course, that settled it. The penitent kiss was better than a world of words, and John had her on his knee in a minute, saying tenderly, 
"'It was too bad to laugh at the poor little jelly pots. "'Forgive me, dear. I never will again.' "'But he did, oh, bless you, hundreds of times, "'and so did Meg, "'both declaring that it was the sweetest jelly they ever made, "'for family peace was preserved in that little family jar. "'After this, Meg had Mr. Scott to dinner by special invitation, "'and served him up a pleasant feast,' without a cooked wife for the first course, on which occasion she was so gay and gracious and made everything go off so charmingly that Mr. Scott told John he was a lucky fellow and shook his head over the hardships of bachelorhood all the way home. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.